Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. I'm Alexander Rose, the director at the Long Now Foundation, and um, I've had the pleasure of working with Kevin Kelly uh, for, uh, I think, a little over 26 years now, and he's been uh, both a mentor and a friend, uh, and he was one of the founding board members at the Long Now Foundation, along with, uh, actually, Doug Carlson, who's here, uh, Stuart Brand, Brian Eno, an amazing set of people who I've learned so much from over the years, and, and his advice has been always amazing, and the idea that, that he's writing a book uh, on some of that advice uh, that that he's learned over the years, I think, is 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 going to be valuable. It already is valuable, I think, for so many of us. Um, but I'd first really like to um, thank the Commonwealth Club for doing this uh, event. Uh, we do, as you may, may know, Long Now Foundation does a lot of events in San Francisco, and I know what a challenge it is to put on these type of events. And for Ken and Jackie Broad, uh, who also are supporters of the Long Now Foundation series, um, to support this and uh, hopefully to do collaborations, uh, more collaborations with the Commonwealth Club and Long Now. Both of these institutions really care about the future of uh, both the Bay Area and, and, uh, and you know, I think humanity more broadly. And that kind of programming is, is increasingly rare. And so we really appreciate it. Kevin Kelly has not only been a board member at the Long Now Foundation, but uh, he was one of the founding, uh, he was the founding editor at Wired. He's now uh, the, uh, considered the senior maverick at Wired and, and worked with Whole Earth Catalog way back, uh, probably back in the, it was the 70s, uh, with Stuart Brand and, um, and then also worked on The Well, the, one of the first online communities that we have. And then one of his uh, more famous books, The New Rules for the New Economy. Um, Tonight, he's going to be hosted by DJ Patil, whose uh, work as the chief data scientist with the U.S. government uh, was really amazing. Um, and both of these organizations, uh, the Commonwealth Club and Long Now, are supported by members like you, who are both here in the room and, uh, and online. And so we really thank all of you. Last thing I just want to say about Kevin is that he has been, most amazingly, he's kind of a, a, a person who in a way is the most kind of Luddite person I know, but has been the way that he approaches and thinks about technology because he comes at it from this kind of skeptic's point of view really has been the most valuable thing that um, that that kind of perspective, that outsider perspective on technology and thought has been the most valuable thing for me. So um, with that, um, I do want to remind you that uh, you all should have question cards here in, in the room. Uh, please fill those out if you have questions. If you're online, you can fill those out online and submit them. We really appreciate that participation. And the fact that we're actually here live in a room again uh, and doing live programming is really amazing. So with that, I want to welcome DJ Patil and Kevin Kelly. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Xander. Uh, uh, that's really one... It's so good to see people in real life. <laughs> yes. Uh, this, this is like the best part of this. So, Xander, uh, thank you, especially for your work on the Long Now Foundation, the collaborations with the Commonwealth Club, uh, and thank you to all of you that are here in person. Yeah. Uh, as, as Xander mentioned, I'm DJ Patil. I'm a general partner at Great Point Ventures, a board member at Devoted Health, and formerly was the chief data scientist of the United States. Uh, but most of all, for this, this group, I get to be, I, I'm lucky enough to be one of the Board of Governors uh, at the Commonwealth Club. 
And I am thrilled that we are back in person uh, for our in-person events. And we are here to return and bring back the conversations around civic ideas, especially down here in downtown San Francisco. I know we've been having so many questions about downtown San Francisco, but we are all here in this beautiful building to do that. Uh, And it's a great time to become a member of the club. And if you aren't yet, please, I encourage you to do so. Learn more at our website at www.commonwealthclub.org. Before we jump in with Kevin, I just want to remind you all that there for your participation there. If you have any questions for the speaker, Kevin, uh, here, if you're here in person, there are cards that will be being uh, collected later. If you're online, Please, uh, please post the questions on the YouTube chat feature and they will get forwarded to me. Uh, and so uh, let's jump in because there is so much to cover. I mean, first of all, Kevin, I, w- I, would, I just have to confess. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, I am an incredible fanboy oh, hey, yeah. <laughs> because I have, uh, as, as you know, reading Wired, it, 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 is, uh, it is your articles help shape so much of my thinking. So okay. just... And immense gratitude for all sure. you've done on that front. Uh, for those that don't know, Kevin founded Wired magazine. He still writes at least one major. Oh, a co-founder. Co-founder. Make that very enough, clear. Very, co-founder. Uh, don't want to cause any. <laughs> uh, uh, but he, he write, you write one major article still yeah, a year from. I do. Uh, but you've also been thinking one of the things I think of most about you uh, especially with all the talk around AI, you've been talking about this way longer right, than right. almost anybody has, uh, well before anybody has gotten there. Your work has been featured in the New York Times, Economist, Harper's Magazine, Science, Esquire, so many more places. And on top of that, one thing that for people who don't know, that you've done some of the most extensive documentation in Asia of, of um, traditions, parts of the culture that are disappearing. Uh, yeah. and. Uh, we'll hopefully get a chance to talk more about that. Uh, uh, but most of all, what I admire most about you is you're a fundamental optimist. Yes. And, and we'll get to talk about that. And of course, with all that experience, Kevin has put together all his wisdom, not all, that, like what he could fit in, <laughs> uh, in this new book, Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier. And, and I'll be honest, this is a book I wish I had in my 20s. Uh, it okay. is, really feels like the operating manual for life. Uh, and there's everything from the profound to the very practical, like mm-hmm. always cut away from yourself. Right. Uh, right, right. So maybe to start, <laughs> 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 things like everyone's like, you, you really wish you were taught at some point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what's the origin story? Yeah, so, so um, it's a real delight to be here. Thank you for everybody who's come out. It's really great that we can do this physically. Thank you for hosting me here, and it's really a pleasure to be here talking about this kind of, for me, a very unusual little turn in writing um, advice because I'm not an advice columnist. Um, Actually, my kids would tell you we didn't really give them much advice. We didn't say much of the advice there. We were trying to model it as much as possible. So writing it down was a big step, and it was originated by the fact that I like to collect little quotes over time. I really enjoyed the ones that had a little twist in them from other people. And then I began to try and create my own. Um, and one year, a couple of years ago, I decided to take the kinds of things that I wished I had known when I was my kids' age, which were young adults, that there were things that actually I had learned that I thought it would be good to try and actually write this down. So I started to write them down 
And then I made a little list and had enough to give away on my 68th birthday. Giving away on a birthday was kind of an Irish hobbit thing where you give away presents on your birthday. And so, um, and I, once I started going, I realized I had a lot more to say. And, and I did that for the following birthdays in the following years. And I started to accumulate. Um, and part of the process became seeing how few words I could do. Most of my time was spent removing words until they were kind of little haikus, little koans, little tweets in some ways. And um, that was a joy. The joy for me was making them as little and short as possible. And so um, it was a gift to my three adult kids, um, young adults. And that was the origin of, of doing it. Although I was originally writing them down for myself to remember the things I was the practical advice. I mean, and a, a great one that I still use today and remind myself constantly is if I have something in my household or my workshop that I know I have, but I can't find it. And then when I finally find it and I go to put it back after I've used it, the thing I repeat to myself is, oh, don't put it back where you got to put it back where you first look for it. Put it back where you first look for it. And so I repeat that self to myself, and that's changed my behavior. And I have other kinds of advice, like practical stuff like that, like um, another example. Actually, stay on the tooling one, because yeah, yeah. this one I thought was a great one that resonated with me, which I was like, how come it, how did I just learn this now? Yeah. Which was, you talk about tooling, buying tools and saying, you know, kind of, Try them out. I can't remember the exact pithy you version. You start with the maybe, cheapest one you can yeah. afford, and then you earn the right to kind of get the more expensive ones. <laughs> if you're using it in a job, you want to buy the best one you possibly can afford. But that progression is what I have found and others who use a lot of tools is you, know, you start with the absolute cheapest that you can get because it doesn't matter, but you have to learn what a good tool is of that variety, and then you can a- afford to or it, it makes sense to pay for the, large, uh, the best that you can afford. So that kind of a progression, I think. Hmm. There's, a, there's another practical little piece of advice, and that was, um, this is slipping off, um, uh, and I picked it up from an editor at the Whole Earth Catalog who said, like, if you get invited to do something six months from now, a, a long way ways, ask yourself if you would do this if it was tomorrow morning before you accept it or not. And I use that all the time now. So it's like, would I really want to do this if it was tomorrow morning? Do I really want to get on a plane and go to New York tomorrow morning? And so, um, and then I make my decision about whether to say yes or no. And that's been incredibly helpful um, in kind of keeping my schedule sane. Do you have advice on how to say no? Yes. So the best way to say no is to say no without an explanation. You don't owe your explanation, and you can actually dilute it. But you just say no, whatever it is. You can say it very, very politely. No, thank you. Um, uh, I can't arrange this, or it's outside of me. But you say no with as little of an excuse as possible, because that's actually the most effective way to say no. Oh, fantastic. You know, when I, as, I was, as I was reading through the book, it, it almost felt like each topic it's 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 little piece of advice like this. It's like almost the beginning of a commencement speech. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I, I kind of felt like there's a story behind. Yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, advice. yeah. 
you, you distill it down. Like you said, yeah, you're yeah, just right, kind of right, removing right. it it down. I'm curious, uh, why put it in this way versus like, uh, a, telling like, a, story. like a, a story or a memoir? Right, 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 right. You're, you're so right, because people love stories, and, and, and we are built out of stories, not really out of atoms, you know, right? I mean, we are, we are storytelling beasts, and we respond to stories, and most advice books are full of these stories. I'm just not a very good storyteller, and I just... <laughs> I, no, I, I, you have to I, explain I, that, because... No, I'm, just, I'm not really good. I know what good storytellers are, and they're really, they, they're really good, but I, I enjoy that kind of telegraphic little... Maxim, the adage, that was the joy for me. And I'm not as good at, at, at making the elaborate um, story. So I just decided to do what I'm strong at and let others do what they're good at and, and do this sort of distillation, this, this little telegraph, this little tweet, which I can do really well and enjoy doing. So one of the bits of advice is um, don't aim to be the best. Don't be the best. Be the only Okay, and this is the idea that um, you want to go and head towards the place where you're doing something that's easy for you and hard for others, and something where where you're doing something that other people can't do or won't do or don't want to do. And for me, that's here. A lot of people can tell stories and have lots of advice and great things. That's for them. I want to go in the direction where it's easy for me and hard for others, and that's into this area of these little tiny you know um, kind of capsule encapsulated it's like a fortune cookie like a fortune cookie yeah. <laughs> yes exactly right well this kind of gets to one thing like when you say like you know don't be the, the don't be the, the, don't, the, don't, don't be, be the, the best, best be the be only, the only. And, and which I thought is, it's, it's I remember reading that and kind of going Oh, how am I supposed to keep reading? I have to like <laughs> ponder this now. And, and this was actually a really struggle. Yeah, yeah. To be very honest, it was a struggle getting through the book because I had to keep breaking it apart. And almost, you know, the way I did it was I'd read like two or three and then right. like go meditate for like 15 minutes. That's and go, exactly like, right. So I'm, like, help me. How do you want people to read this? Is it like, should this be like a desk calendar? <laughs> it should be a bowl of like yeah, yeah. just fortune cookies. That's, that's, you know, it's actually the original subtitle, which the publisher rejected, was Seeds of Contemplation. It was the idea that these are little seeds that you can unpack and fit your life. It was this idea that you might do one a day. And that was another idea was that there was one a day, kind of like a calendar. I think the actually... Um, to be honest, um, for those who are on the Twitter sphere, that one of the most effective ways this is is like a Twitter a day that's a little bit, yeah. and you kind of come across it, and it kind of can expand or slide around or be forwarded. Um, that's sort of the, the, and that's sort of how it began. It began online. That was the origins. It was not on a printed book. So, it, so the native, the native home for this may not be in a book. Right. It may actually be out there being forwarded along, and. Um, that may be really the way to kind of get them is, is, is one a day and, and something that you can kind of be provoked to, to think about. But that was the intention was that you would add your own story to it um, and, and see how it applied. Oh. Well, what I, even if somebody out there hopefully codes it up and like a little one a day kind of sign up and get it. I still, uh, what I found I did and strongly encourage everyone to do is buy a copy still. Yeah, sure. Uh, and I don't say that just because here, because sure. I found I was, uh, annotating. A, yeah. I really was annotating a lot of ink and yeah. using it as a 
reflective process. Yeah, exactly, the meditative. And, and the idea of the kind of seeds of contemplation, I think, would be a great way to do it. Um, and I have given copies, prototype versions. And but, by the way, that's another bit of advice: is that you should, rather than make grand plans, prototype your life, prototype everything. Everything should start with little earlier experimental versions of the thing and you kind of iterate your way to whatever it is. It's really hard to kind of imagine what something, design it out and then go and do it in one stroke. It's much better to prototype almost most things in your life. That book was prototyped. I made prototype versions of the book that were bound like like a regular book and I handed them out to people and I found that a lot of them were we're doing the same thing. They were, mar- you know, were they're annotating it and using marginalia, and so. Um, but prototyping your life is a great, I think, a great way. And I'd learned a, a, a lot of ways to prototype. When we were doing a kitchen remodel, we prototyped it in cardboard at full scale just to see where things are. When I make um, something that's complicated. There's a little saying in the builder-maker community, you make one to throw away. And that idea, oh, that just, I just could not see that when I was young. It was just so hard to imagine that I would go through all this trouble to make something and finally finish it, and then to, like, oh, throw it away and make it even better than right again. That was like, that just did not compute. But I now see the, I now accept that as the way to make something really good. You can make something okay once, but to make it really good, you have to kind of make it and redo it again and again. And, the, and each one of those is sort of a prototype. And you can go with the whole way and finishing the thing with the assumption that you're just going to redo it. Mm-hmm. And that took me such a long time to get to. But it really is one of the best ways to write a book, to make a song, to do a movie, to build a to you know, redesign a kitchen is you make different versions of it and you learn as you go along and you get much closer to making something great that way. You know, as I was reading this, uh, my kids, if my kids are watching, they're good. <laughs> they are so extraordinarily annoyed with me right now because I would take pictures of segments of the book and send it to them. <laughs> and I was like, see, it's not me just saying this. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, a famous yeah. author saying it. And, and so I'm wondering, what's the response been from your yes, kids? Yes, okay, well, <laughs> so um, my son was just visiting, actually for my birthday, but for other reasons. Um, and so I gave him the book, which he had not seen. And I said, okay, you have to tell me what you think because people are going to ask. And uh, so he came back. He said, you know, you definitely did not ever say any of these things, but, <laughs> but, but you taught us. Huh. You taught us. I, 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 I learned these from you, even though you never said them. And I thought that was really great because that was our intention was, I know, know that kids don't really listen to their parents, but they pay a lot of attention to what you do. And we were really trying to model the behaviors and the, what we wanted for them without lectures or, or um, even preaching to them or even giving them advice. And so we didn't do very much of that, but they did get those messages. Um, but he said also, but yet, yet I really do find it valuable that you did finally write it down. So that's been the reaction was that, Yes, you were saying it, but but it is good to have it written down. Hmm. 
Maybe let's let's take a couple examples uh, from the book, and I would love to hear yeah. the backstory. You know, it, it, it's um, the one you you talk about. Also, is not uh, in addition. You call it prototype your life. Yeah. Try stuff instead of making grand plans. Right. The part I wanted to ask you about here is the grand plans component of this, mm. and how how did this? You know, because I think a lot of people are saying if we're because we're heading into commencement season, everyone's saying yeah, right. plan, plan big, aim big. Right, right, right. How how do you bring together the the boldness of vision and the prototyping? How do you connect those? Well, like let's say you kind of decided you wanted to start a business or something. The grand plan would be that you quit your job and you um, you know you have the business plan for the five year thing. You go out and pitch it to people, whatever. That's the grand plan. But uh, the prototyping way is that you keep your day job and you do something along the lines of trying to see if this little thing that you have in mind does work at all, whether you can make one version of it, whether you can do it one time. You, 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 you try it out in some capacity before you quit your job and make a big business plan. So, so it's, you're headed in a grand direction. It's, it's, it's a, you're headed in a direction rather than aiming for a destination. And I think that's the general drift of my advice is that we're even going back to don't be the best, be the only. That's a very high bar to get to. That's the grand plan. But you're not going to get there in one swoop. You have to kind of head in a certain direction where you're always going in that direction and you're iterating over time to arrive there. And so you can have a, a goal that is very high and that's really great. The higher, the better in some senses, because if you don't make it, even you still might arrive much higher than you thought you could get to. But you, you get there by iterating and making little small steps and doing experiments and having lots of failures. That's the thing, is that you want to keep your failures small and regular. It's kind of like success is sort of like failure management, mm-hmm. Right. That's what it is. That's like one right there. Exactly. Yeah, it's failure management. And so and so you 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 are you, you're trying I'm gonna to write that down. Fail forward. <laughs> uh, so um so yeah, so I think you see what I mean by that. And you know, and that's by the way, that's having the high goal is really great because um, if you don't reach it, you still arrive somewhere that you might not have ordinarily gotten if you had a lower goal. And so it's not, it's not against the high goal, the ambitious goals. It's just saying that there's, the way you get there is not by plans, but by iterations and prototypes. This one uh, really stopped me in my tracks when I was, I was reading. Um, you don't need more time because you mm-hmm. already have all the time that you will ever get. You need more focus. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can look, think of the most productive person that you know of, and they have exactly the same amount of time as you have. And um, uh, that's also, by the way, true for money. Um, a lot of people are concerned about, you know, making more money. But if you look at actually, if you tally the amount of money that has flowed through your hands over your life, it's shocking. It's shocking how much you have come through you. And a lot of what um, you know, wealth and riches is about is, again, managing 
that flows is coming through you already. And it's the same thing with time. Say, say a little bit more about that before we get back to the focus. Yeah, yeah. Because you actually talk about, uh, you spend a fair amount of the book talking about happiness. Yeah. And about giving away. Yeah. So, so my, 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 my general bias, my general premise, the thing that, again, maybe it took me a long time to articulate and understand in myself is that um, I think one of the things that we're taught is that the basic human default in the world is selfishness, that people will, all things being equal, will act selfishly. And that um, that's the human nature. And, and, and I found the opposite. And, and I'm more convinced than ever, and there's more scientific evidence, to say that actually, no, the default of human behavior is actually selflessness, in, given everything is equal. And um, that's been my experience. And so, so I found that there's this really weird, weird arithmetic in the universe, which says that the more you give, the more you get. That makes no sense at all, but that just seems to be true. And that's what I've come to count on, is that there is a generosity at, at large in the world. Um, later on, one of the bits of advice talks about um, pronoia. So paranoia is this suspicion that everybody is working behind the back to take you down. Pronoia is a suspicion Everybody in the world is trying to make you succeed, okay? <laughs> and I have come to say that that to be pronoia about about the world, and, and that there is this: if you let people, they will help you, and if you trust every stranger, there is occasionally you may be cheated, but if you are, that's a tax, a small tax to pay for the overwhelming benefit that you get by trusting all the strangers who will give you the best that they have. And so overall, yeah, you might get cheated every once in a while, but that's nothing compared to the benefit of trusting everybody at first. And so, um, so I think there's a general, my outlook is the general bias towards the generosity of the world and human behavior to trust that. And, and by the way, that's also why I have optimism about the future and, and the long now is because, in a certain sense, I'm trusting not just strangers today, but I'm trusting future generations. Mm-hmm. And, and, and one of the reasons I am optimistic about technology, and one of the bits of advice I say is that, that optimism is not built on kind of ignoring the problems that we have. It's not thinking that the problems we have are smaller than they look. It's understanding that our capacity to solve the problems will keep growing, particularly in the future, and faster than the problems. And so, so my optimism about the future is, again, is, is trusting the future in a certain way. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you bring up uh, um, optimism, because yeah. in, the, in the, a talk you gave in 2022, uh, TED Talk, you, you said, optimists don't shun problems. Optimism about, is about embracing problems because it's problems that make solutions right. and solutions may, that make problems. Right. Could you elaborate on that? And really what I would love to get a sense of is where is, and you talk about this in yeah, the yeah. talk a little bit, but where is that root of optimism, especially given the challenges we see today from climate change, threats on democracy, 
you know, inflation, pandemic, I, the list right, could right, go right, on right. and on. I, I think a lot, of, a lot of pessimism is from people because it makes you sound smart if you're skeptical of things. But actually, actually, I believe that if you are really, really honest and look at the actual data and the science and the evidence that shows that progress is real, that, that there's no doubt that if you, if you had to be assigned at random some year to live in, and you had no control over where you were born, who you were born to, what level you were born to, what gender, if you had none of that control, there's no way you want to be born in the past, really. And so, uh, so I think optimism is actually um, a, a type of realism. It's like saying, no, no, this is, we have real progress. It could end tomorrow, but statistically it's going to continue because all the conditions are the same. And so, um, you know, if, 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 the, if the newspaper headlines only came out every hundred years, they'd all be positive news. Hmm. Birth rate, you know, like longevity uh, is increased. Safety is increased. But it's the fact that, 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 by and large, bad things happen fast and good things happen slowly. And so... N- all news, no matter what the venue, it doesn't matter the quality of it. Just all news, by default, has to tend towards the negative, because that's what's likely to have happened in the last five minutes is probably something bad, and the good stuff is just going to take a much longer scale to see. So to to see it, you have to have a longer horizon. You have to have a longer view, and that's so. The longer view you have, I think, the more optimistic you'll become. Because you're taking that long view and understanding that through, compound, through the value of compounding things, little tiny improvements can compound over time given a long view of the future. So if you want to become more optimistic, take a longer view of the past and the future. If you want to become more optimistic, understand that setbacks are only temporary. And that, by the way, there is something called learned optimism for kids trying to teach kids to be more optimistic. And that's one of the things that they dwell on, is the fact that for the children to understand that setbacks is not part of their identity. It's not saying, I'm, I'm unlucky. I am, um, I'm fated to, to always screw up. They're saying, no, setbacks are temporary. Um, and so they can be overcome. And they can be overcome the longer you... Um, see yourself doing it. So another piece of advice is that a lot of success is indistinguishable from patience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right? If, if you are willing to think about something over a decade, taking a decade to do, it's much more achievable than if you can try to imagine doing it in a year. So you can accomplish so much more if you take a decade. And again, that's kind of the long view of the, of the long now, where um, I think it's inherently optimistic because you are changing the horizon and elevating that, and that gives you uh, more opportunities so you can overcome even fairly large disturbances, fairly large setbacks. Given the long view, they're just temporary things that you can overcome. Well, I think you just, I wrote this down too, because I didn't remember this one in the book, but it feels like one that should be in the the addendum, is bad news happens fast, good news happens slowly. Right, right. I'm curious, as you talk about optimism and what you said about your son yeah. saying you lived this, how, how, can you help us 
you know, I'm, I'm a parent of kids. Yeah, how, sure. how did you, how did you sh- live this? How did you show this like optimism in, in your own life? Yeah. Um, I, 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 it could have been laziness. <laughs> <laughs> we were, we were the opposite of helicopter pairs. My kids kind of joke because, um, um, they went to college. I, I'm a college dropout, but they, uh, they had the, um, I, I made it very, first of all, my wife is Chinese. So it's like, College, straightforward. You have to choose, and I, was, and I was like, "Listen, you don't have to go to college. <laughs> you don't have to go to college. But if you don't go, you have to have something you're doing. You have to have some project or something which we will support. And if you can't think of anything to do, then you have to go to college. Okay. And so they went to college, but they joke about it because I dropped them off on the first day. And then four years later, I picked them up and they didn't, I mean, there was no cell phones. I didn't, there was no messaging. There was just like, see you in four years. That was what, we, that was my style. Huh. So, um, uh, I guess that's, I don't know, that's laziness or they're feral children or something, but that was, uh, <laughs> That was the style. Well, well, maybe let's go to one, which is, is, <laughs> is uh, the, this one I love too, which was um, the only productive way to answer yeah. what I should, what, uh, what should I, I do know is to first tackle the question of who should I become? Yes. I think I have another bit of advice is work to um, become, not to acquire. Mm-hmm. So, so. There's another piece of advice. This is all related. I mean, you can see myself repeating here, um, which is attend as many funerals as you possibly can and listen to what people say. Because, and, and I have been doing that, unfortunately, as I get older. And um, it's remarkable to me that m- most of what is being said is not about that person's accomplishments. It's about how they made you feel, what kind of a character they were, who, who had they become. And so um, that's kind of in the end where it really counts is, is who you are, how you are while you achieve things, um, how you treat people, what you're like. And, 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 and so you want to focus that in, in, in your work. And another piece of advice is never work for um, uh, a boss that you don't want to become like. I mean, I, I said it a little better, but the idea is like, you're going to be like the people you're surrounded by. And if you're working for somebody like that, you're, you are going to become more like that. So you have to be very careful about who you work with. And so um, becoming is, is really the thing that we're doing. That's our journey is we're becoming something. And I would like, and my, what I'm working for in the world with this idea of technology is actually to equip everybody in the world today born yet unborn, to, as much as possible, to fully become yourself, and, and that you'll become the only. And um, that will take, for most people, including myself, most of my life or your life to kind of arrive there. Um, it, it's very unclear. Everybody will have, um, who's on this journey, will have setbacks, detours, right turns, complete... Um, chaos and disasters along the way. And um, that is the normal way. If you ask anybody who has any kind of success, there's no straight line to, to that. It's, it's, it's a meandering, um, crisis-filled, doubt-filled journey of becoming you, the only, the, the, the best you as possible. And so that's what I'm aiming for to equipping people 
using technology, which help us release the genius in everybody um, on that kind of, of, of a path. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you mentioned about your, your uh, life partner, and this actually question kind of yeah. resonates, which I was going to, maybe we can take this a couple different directions, is in this, as you wrote this, what's the advice you have for having a great partner? This question is specifically also about how do you find a great partner, professional yeah. or personal? So for me, one of, the, um, one of the things I would look for in a partner, whether it's romantic or you know, business one, is uh, I don't, I'm not looking for someone that I um, don't disagree with. I want to find someone that I, I enjoy disagreeing with. That, that there's some that there's some because you're not going to agree. So you have to you have to you have to disagree well. You have to disagree in a kind of a, a progressive uh, additive way. And uh, the second thing for my wife and I, and, and this is a uh, uh, we've observed this and other people is, um, I think you kind of want to take turns letting the other partner always be right. Mm-hmm. That really really helps. Right now, it's my wife's turn, so she's always right. <laughs> is, is there like a statute of time? Is there? It's as long as it works in that direction, it works. Right? So uh, it's, I'm telling you, it's really, really fabulous. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> well, this, this one seems apt. The, the person also highlighted, which is along this yeah. dimension, is learn to learn from those that you disagree with. Right. Yeah, um, which is, I, I think, my wife would like for me to have that tattooed <laughs> on my arm. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's you know, because, and, and the rest of that is because they will usually have something that you can learn from. And that's what I have learned is that, uh, in fact, as I get older, I become more uncertain about things and more aware of how much I don't know and more aware of my own ignorance. And so um, uh, there are people that I fundamentally disagree with, but yet... They have something to teach me, and um, I don't necessarily need to like them, but I certainly should respect them, and I would respect what they know that I don't know. And by the way, that's a little bit of a game that I found very useful um, in just everyday life and meeting people is that um, I've come to understand that every single person that I meet is an expert on something that I know nothing about and my job is to find out what it is. And it's usually not very obvious. So you kind of have to work at it. But there's nothing better than arriving at that from the person and hearing them light up. Because you've now discovered their passion and they're just going to tell you. And that is, for me, one of the best experiences. And it's so easy to do if you just, just if you know that this person here, this person here, they, each of you knows something you're the expert on in some ways of the whole world. And, um, but it's not really obvious what it is, and it's often not coming out uh, at first. You have to kind of um, be patient to find how, out what how it do is. You get, how do you get that out of a person? In fact, you, you have this rule of three in conversation yeah. to get to the real reason, ask the person to go deeper into what they just said. Then again... And then once more, the third answer is the clo- one closest to the truth. Like, how do you implement that? Well, <laughs> so, so that, I, like, I, what I mean here, also, so just to clarify, is like, I can imagine you're a person who's fantastic walking around a room and unlocking <laughs> the wisdom that other people have. Yeah. 
I am terrible at this. Yeah, yeah. How, how do you do it? Teach me, master. So, so, <laughs> so, 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 so that one is a lot about in, in couples therapy, which is that when you're having a very, very um, passionate or intimate conversation to really find out what's going on with someone, you have to be willing to, 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 to go to the third level. So the first thing, of, how are you doing? Oh, okay. Well, that's the first level. Then you go a little deeper, and then you go further for the third round to really get to it. But I think it's true, as you suggest, even if finding out what that person's passion is. So I'll be having a different conversation, and, you know, what are you interested in, whatever it is, and they hear something, and it sounds, it sounds like first level. It's like, well, you know, like, uh, what would you be doing if you weren't having to do this? Do you have another thing that you've been wanting to work on? And, and that will be, give us something. And then maybe the third one, it's like, well, tell me what you really, um, what do you know about that, that nobody else knows about? Or that, tell me about something that, that um, you know a lot more about than you can think I could. And then usually by the third round, they've got something that is maybe they were embarrassed by or didn't think it was important, but it doesn't matter. They're just completely passionate about it. And that's what I live for. No. Oh. Uh, you talk about, like in the today's society, we have an outrage. Yeah. We have an outrage. We have an outrage amplifier uh, called uh, Twitter. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but also at the same time, your idea took off on Twitter. Right. And you also have this line uh, in the book uh, about choose not to be outraged today. Yeah. And I'll be honest, I really struggle with this. Yeah, yeah. You know, we live, we're in a time where we have we have a very polarized society. We have questions about yeah, yeah, fundamental yeah. liberties. Um, gun violence is a real issue. Questions about who's in charge of people's bodies. How, and, and I think about like how the civil rights movement started right. with you know, people being outraged. And sure. so, but at the same time, I don't want my life to be consumed in a fire of outrage. Uh, right, for, right. Uh, so well, how do you manage this complexity? So I, I think I may be a little bit more like a monk. I, I've taken a vow of not being outraged. Okay? So I don't think every... I, mean, I think outrage is necessary. It's just that so many other people do it, and they do it well. I just don't need to do it. <laughs> this is like, be the best. Don't be the best. Be the only. So yeah. for me, I realize I just don't do outrage well, and I don't like it. And so I have the vow of not to be outraged today. Maybe tomorrow, but not today. And um, that's what I'm good at. So I don't know if I can teach that, but I do know that it would be a lot better if there was less outrage. Because it's sort of like a, it's like a fear. It's, I think, fundamentally, it's a lack of imagination. It's, it's imagination or empathy, even. It's like not understanding that there's another deeper, complicated story for whatever it is that you're outraged about. There's another, there's five other sides to it. There's, there's, there's nuance that's not being represented. There's, there's a whole bunch of misinterpretation going on in addition to whatever um, is obvious. And so, um, and, and so it takes patience to kind of figure out what the actual story is and get to the bottom of it and and, and people don't have that kind of patience. And it takes imagination to imagine and empathy to imagine the reason why someone would believe that. And I think, I think if um, 
it's, it's hard, but, but, but if, you, know, you need to listen. And then you listen to crazy people. It's like, well, they have some reason why they believe that. And if you can understand why they believe it, it may not change your mind, but it will certainly give you more empathy and allow you not to be as out, outraged. Well, as a journalist, you know, we're also living in a time where journalism is under attack yeah. and ideas under attack. And, you know, what I think about a lot of time here is as, you know, we're dealing with this in this conflict of society and the culmination of all these different ideas and people are feeling about how, what have you learned about getting people to understand the truth Hmm. and how do you wield the power you have as a writer through wire, through other things to help people see through the outrage to see through, to get to the truth. Yeah. Again, going back to, I'm not a, despite the fact that I wrote a book about advices, I'm not that preachy because I don't know um, how much truth I actually know that I'm confident about. Um, And so um, I I, I do think that um, this era that we're in right now, particularly with the coming of AI, I'm sure we're going to get there, and its ability to generate and hallucinate things, make up stuff that sound really plausible, to create images that are completely believable, that this is going to become a more issue and more of an issue. And, and I think, and I agree that that is going to be something that we're going to be talking more about, this, um, this thing of how, what, what does it take for us to believe something is true? And um, the, the, the interesting answer is that we don't even know right now. We don't have a good metric. Like if, 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 uh, if you do a search for something and it comes back and it says X, Y, and Z, what do we need? I'm ta- speaking to myself. What do I need to be able to honestly believe that? Does it need to have a source that goes seven levels down, you know, footnoted to the footnote to the footnote? Does it need to have a trusted source where I believe them because why? Because I believe them in the past, because they've proven more right than wrong by whatever metric I'm using. Is it um, something that I believe because most other people that I respect also believe that consensus? That's another metric. Is it that there's some neutral fact-finding agency or something that gives a stamp of approval? It's, it's a really good question of what it will take for us individually, one by one, in order to be convinced that something is true. And um, there's a one, a fourth method, which is to embed into the, into the knowledge graph, they call it, um, like a, most statements are a triple, they're triple. There's a noun, verb, and object. Well, the idea, and this is Danny Hillis's idea, is to add a fourth one, which is who asserts this, the assertion, who claims this. So every fact would have four parts, not just three parts. There would be, and that would be embedded in some ways, and so you could trust the source. And that, in one sense, is one person's answer, which is the only way you're going to be able to know what something true is, do you trust the source? Um, so, so I, I don't, I don't have a, a good story about how we can arrive there. But I do think 
that we are going to be having this conversation a lot and um, there has to be some new innovation and technology to counteract this ability of things to be made up so we can't really tell. Um, we've had it in text for a very long time. You can't tell from looking at a piece of writing whether it's true or not. You have to only believe the source. And now we can't tell with images and videos and music and stuff. So, so we need some new tools about being, helping us do that. So I do think that's a new frontier. Now, a number of our questions uh, when I ask online uh, asked about, uh, wanted to know about AI. So yeah, yeah, let's yeah, yeah. maybe turn to that as well, some of the questions here. You know, in particular, because you've been talking about AI, as I mentioned yeah, at the yeah. beginning, I've been following your, your mm-hmm. writing. It's been very influential to me. You know, in 2016, which seven years ago, you, you gave a talk about AI is, has the potential to come about and bring a second industrial revolution. Right. What's your, when you look back now, when you look also through the lens of mm-hmm. all, all the things you've done, what's your take in, on AI? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Where to start? Um, well, it doesn't fit in one line. Exactly, right. <laughs> um, well, f- f- I think it's both um, underestimated and overestimated, or overrated and underrated at the same time, or overhyped and underhyped. It's, and, and, and the main reason is, is because um, the, one of my main messages about AI is to talk about it in plural, as AIs. I think one of the biggest misconceptions that we have is that there is the AI, AI, the AI, when there is going to be hundreds of varieties of all different levels, all different complexities, different species, lots of them doing different things with different dynamics, different economic models, different roles in their lives. It's not a single thing. It's sort of like the electrical revolution or the industrial revolution wasn't a single thing. It was massive infrastructural, many kinds of motors, not just one single big motor in the sky. It was motors everywhere, most of them being invisible. Most of the AI is going to be invisible to us. So, um, so that's the first thing, is that it's not a monolithic thing, a force, like a god. It's gods. There's lots of little things everywhere with different things to say about them. And then the second thing is that... Um, uh, we're handicapped because we really have no idea what we mean by intelligence. We don't know. We're just, we, we think we know, but we have no idea what that actually is. And part of what's happening is that we are in real time uncovering the ingredients and understanding and, under, and seeing that it's much more complicated than we thought. It's not like IQ, which is just one dimension it has many dimensions. It has many gradations. Again, many species. And so that complicates our answers to what it is, what it means. Because, um, it again, what we're using, the framing that we're using to talk about it is our own intelligence. And in the landscape of all possible intelligences, human intelligence is way off to the corner, just like we are in a galaxy. It's not, we're not general purpose anything. We don't have a general purpose intelligence. We have a very specific, weird kind of intelligence that is involved on this planet for a very specific reason. And all the other kinds of possible minds that we're going to make are going to be very, very different from us. And so um, we'll discover more about what intelligence is, that it's a 
whole complex of different kinds of cognition from induction, deduction, pattern recognition. And um, we're going to kind of have a better vocabulary to even talk about it because a lot of the AIs will have better than us in some dimensions and worse than us in others. And I think the most common refrain we're going to have in the years to come is cursing them with dumb smarten. You are so dumb smarten. How can you be so brilliant in that and so dumb over here? Okay? And so I think we're going to have an increasingly better idea of what we mean by intelligence and what it is to what we do. But right now, we have really no idea. I'm looking forward to when I go home tonight to be called dumb smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're dumb it, smart, it's too. It's true. Well, yeah, what, yeah. What, what strikes me about that also is that, you know, it's, it's like every year we learn that there's something new in a way that we hadn't. Like, for example, right. when people finally realize that people could actually see music. And yeah. Musical notes. Right. Like Synthesis. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and so these components are like, oh, there is a different form of, of intelligence. Or people are realizing that autistic people have different superpowers. Yes. And, and so th- that's that. And really... Animals are much smarter in many dimensions than we ever believed. Right. If you've seen the videos of the gorillas doing the pattern recognition, this just blows any human away. And th- there they are. So. So, yeah, so we, we, we just don't know. And, and lots of things that we thought were kind of spiritual levels turn out to be something that we can replicate in the machinery like creativity. I mean, the thing about it is, is that these new like, large language models, the chatbots and the mid-journeys, actually are creative. They're creative with a lowercase c, kind of the everyday creativity of making something kind of new. It's really not breakthrough, but it's creative. It's, it's, and we thought that you had to have a very, really high, high level of intelligence and super intelligence to be creative. But it turns out, no, you can do it with pretty, it's a pretty primeval kind of, of thing that we can actually import. And that's, that's going to be true for emotions. That's the thing that people are not really prepared for is when we start to port, excuse me, port emotions into these machines. Because when I was growing up, emotions were seen as something you got after you were intelligent, but actually it's like way more lower level, way more primitive, as we can tell from animals who can express emotions and respond to them. So we're going to have emotions in machines that aren't even very intelligent, um, and that's, going to, that's a whole other shock to the system and what we do with that and how we control that. So the kind of the questions we have about truth and disinformation, wait till we have them about emotions, about whether we allow them to solicit unrequited love, whether there's bonding allowed to have with these machines, whether we can have um, them show faithfulness and loyalty and all these other things. That's going to be a huge, huge um, disruption. No, this gets to one a question that was asked is um, really about you've documented so many different tech cycles, right. technology evolutions across many different, not just sure, it, it, you know, web tech. Sure. Um, is there are there learnings from the previous cycles that you've seen that could be applied yeah. now that we should be thinking about as paradigms? Yeah, I I I, I think that there's a panic cycle that people societies that we collectively go through when a new technology comes along and um, it kind of fills a familiar pattern. And the first, the per- first level is sort of um, 
a disbelief, a denial that it's true. And so a lot of the AI stuff, people, they refuse to believe that it could ever be, that intelligence could ever be moved to machines. And there was like, that's not going to happen. That's not real. And then once there is this realization, oh, it's real, there's this idea of um, um, how, um, how much, that's just going to cause problems and it's not going to affect them. That, that this is something that, um, again, is relegated to um, somewhere else. And um, over, then the next stage is, is this idea that it's um, um, unfair in a certain sense because um, the people who have it have some advantage. So, so you're know, saying, actually, it does work. And the fact, so, 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 so there's, there's a moment where people are upset about the technology because it doesn't work very well. And that's a lot of the AI right now. It's, you know, has biases or it, it makes mistakes. So there's a lot of criticism about it, the fact that it doesn't work. And then it starts to work perfectly and then there's criticism that it works too well. Right? It's like, oh, it works too well and, and it works better than humans. And so um, we kind of like the, uh, the error when it didn't work so well. And so that is another phase in the panic cycle where it works too well. And then there's the idea that it's an unequally distributed. It works so well that it's unfair to those who don't have it. Mm-hmm. Right? So now, now we want to make sure everybody has it. And, um, and then once everybody has it, uh, it becomes boring, and we kind of accept it as, um, wh- why doesn't it happen faster? Why aren't the upgrades are happening faster? So there is generally a kind of um, resistance to, to those changes and I, and, um, I think we see the same pattern with whatever the new technologies and genetic engineering will be next set at some point with the same kind of, of fear. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, returning back to the, the book at hand is a couple questions that come up on this topic of really about your advice, your wisdom about how do you find your superpower? How yeah. do you find your purpose? So... Um, one of the things I, one of my bits of advice to my own children and to other their friends is that if you, if you at all can, this is actually true, not just of young people, but if you possibly can, try and work in an area where there's no name for what it is that you're doing, where it takes a long time to kind of explain to your mother or father what it is that you're doing. <laughs> they just don't understand. That's a really good sign that you're in a good spot that will be more likely the place where breakthroughs and the frontier will happen. And it's also more likely you'll be able to find that place where it's only you and and not just the best. And, um, you know, it's like there's lots of examples of that if maybe... I mean, my life was data science. Exactly, right. There you go. (laughs) No one else... No, everyone's like, what are you doing? Yeah, exactly. Why are you doing this? (laughs) Exactly. Or 15 years ago, you kind of... You're 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 doing this thing. It's kind of like a radio show, but it's on the internet, and uh, <laughs> so we interview people, like, but not for the magazine. It's like, oh, it's, we call it podcasters now, but that was very difficult to explain back then. So, um, uh, so, so that's one piece of advice: is try and work where there's no name for what it is you do, and that's also true for I think a startup too, uh, any kind of business is 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 that becoming uncategorizable because it's not, you're not the best at something. It's a whole new, whole new occupation. Um, the second piece of advice it would be um, 
and, and I've observed this too, which is um, when you're really young, like in your 20s, if at all possible, if you have, if you can all swing it, um, spend some amount of time, a year, whatever it is, doing something that looks nothing like success. It should look as, be as unprofitable, as, as weird, as dangerous, as time-wasting, as um, unexplainable as Something possible. Something where people, the family feels like they need an intervention. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that time, if you do it to your full extent, will become a touchstone for you later on. Huh. That will be the thing that you return to, that experience, those insights that you have. And um, what was that for you? For me, it was uh, dropping out of college and and um, going to um, Taiwan and Japan in 1972 when there were still third world. Well, Japan wasn't. Taiwan was developing country and having my mind blown um, just uh, because going from parochial suburban New Jersey in the in the um, 60s to there was like, it was like a combination of time machine and going to another planet. And so, um, and it seemed to be, I mean, I, I was signing up for like, you know, having, never having a career, you know, not being successful because I was going to take this other path of dropping out of college and, and, you know, with no money hitchhiking around Japan for five months. And so, um, that's what it was for me. And, um, luckily, my, actually, I got my kids to try that too, and and they and they. How did, how did that go down as a family? Yeah. So, my son. <laughs> I, was, I may be asking for personal. Yeah, yeah. My, <laughs> my 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 son, you know, went through a very high. He was a, it was a bilingual school in San Francisco, bilingual English and Chinese, where they had double the they had math in English and then math in Chinese. I don't know why they did it that way, but so he had a lot of math. A lot of science, and they went to a very um, intense high school with getting good grades, and then um, college, getting good grades and being involved in stuff. And then I said, when he graduated, I said, look, you need to goof off for a year. You need to do not go find a job. You need to take some time to waste and to just do something where you are not trying to perform and be excellent. Just um, just do something where, where you can do something just for the pure joy of doing it. Because they'd never experienced that during their entire times. Everything was structured. And so um, that was great. It was a magical thing that um, he he's still coming back to now. And so um, I guess it was a little bit of a I mean, he, he performed well enough that my wife was perfectly satisfied. He got, he got the degree and all that kind of stuff. So mission completed. And it's like, okay, now, now let's try something a little different. Yeah, fascinating. Um, when you think about the, this, your own life of how, like as you said, you, you kind of evolved into uh, these areas. How did you then decide to stick with something? <laughs> Yeah, um, that is a really great, um, that's a great conundrum. And, and, and I do have a bit, bit of advice about that. And that's, there is this balance between exploiting something that you're good at and, and you can do more of 
and you might want to do more of, and your audience or customers or fans, whatever it is, want more of. So the famous, you know, musician, play the old songs. But the artist part of them wants to, you know, play electric guitar, do something new, um, try something that might fail. And um, I have found, and that's true, like even going out to eat into a restaurant, where do you order the same thing that you really love? Or do you try something new that could not work and be no good or mediocre? And so I found, and people have done studies, that the correct ratio is about one-third. One-third of exploring versus two-thirds of exploiting. Hmm. So I try to maybe balance that in that sense of like, okay, something I know how to do well is just make books. I'll do two-thirds of my time doing that because I can do it so well and so easily and I know how to do it and people like books versus a third trying to go in a different direction where I can fail easily and it's not clear whether there's any demand for this and I don't even know what I'm doing. And so I would say I do it one third to two thirds. No. We, we just have a couple of minutes left. Yeah. If there's a piece of advice that you wish could be tattooed on every person. Oh boy. <laughs> What would that advice be? Well, I think we've kind of hit on it, and I've said it before, which is um, don't be the best, be the only. Try and find that, that only thing in your life. And um, it's a high bar. It will, and by the way, you can't do it by yourself. The reason why we're surrounded by family, friends, you're going to need siblings, you're going to need colleagues, you're going to need customers, clients, all to help you understand what it is that you can do a little better than most people. And um, I learned this at Wired, where um, I was trying to commission stories. I had great ideas. I tried to get writers to write them. They said, That's not, I don't like that idea. It's no good. I thought, I, was, I think it's a really good idea. And then I would put it away, and then maybe next year, try it again, try to sell it. And people would say, no, nah, I don't think it's a really good idea. I think it's a really good idea. And then I put that away, try to kill it. And then it'd come back a third year, and I would try and sell it. And then I would realize, oh, wait, I have to do this. This is for me. I'm the only one who thinks this is a great one. So this is the stories that I would write. Hmm. And those are always my successful ones. And so there's this idea, oh, oh. so it's, it's it, because, and then when I'm writing it, I'm, uh, there's no one else trying to write it. I've been, I've been trying to give it away for years. And this is something that I do now is whatever I'm working on, I tell everybody about it, hoping that somebody might steal it, because then I don't have to do it. Okay? And, and then when I, if I do do it, I know that, that no one else is going to take it, but I've been trying to give it away for years. <laughs> and so there is this idea that there's a, the normal Holy Trinity for most people in life is that you are going to work on something that you're really good at, you love doing, and it's valuable. Other people will pay you. And if you can, for most people, if they can make that Holy Trinity, the kind of Venn diagram of those three things, they're golden. But there's a fourth level, which is, can anybody else do this? Because if someone else can doing it, then you should be doing things that only you can do. And that's where I think is the great thing for most people to aim for, is looking at that, trying to discover what that is, something where they find it easy, other people find hard. And if you can aim in that direction, put that on your tattoo. Fantastic. 
Uh, Kevin, we didn't even get to talk about your fantastic work. You're, uh, um, sure. you're documenting Asia. For those that haven't had a chance to check it out, I strongly encourage you to look online. Uh, I believe it's Vanishing Asia. Vanishing Asia, 50 years of, of documenting the vanishing parts of Asia everywhere in Asia. And these days, actually, for the past couple of years, I've been posting my daily art, um, uh, either by hand or with an AI code generator these days. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, and other stuff. So I'm really happy if people come find me. And how did they find you? Uh, my initials, kk.org is the website, and I'm the Kevin2, number, number two Kelly on the socials. Awesome. Uh, I could go on and on because there's so much wisdom in here. Thank you, Kevin Kelly. Uh, This brings our program to a close. I would like to thank Kevin again for being here. I encourage all of you, those that are here, get a copy of the book. Uh, Thank you uh, for the Ken and Jacqueline Broad Fund for helping bring that together and making that happen, as well as the Long Now Foundation. Uh, The book, again, uh, is Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom That I'd Wish I'd Known Earlier. Uh, Thank you again, Kevin, and I'm DJ Patil, and this program is now adjourned. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.